0: Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 55. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Wollman. Good day to you, Dr. Wollman.
1: And how are you, Christina?
0: Absolutely wonderful.
1: Good, and <laughs> greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wollman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for ways towards optimal health. You know, Christina, when people get hurt, uh, they usually go to a doctor. uh, I'm talking about a physical injury of some kind. They usually go to a doctor, and a doctor makes a diagnosis, tries to determine whether or not they may or may not need a surgery. Uh, if, If there's a potential for them not to need surgery and avoid it, or they do need surgery and they have to heal from it, there are two special groups of people, world-class professionals. There are physical therapists and Pilates instructors. And these are the people that potentially help us to prevent a surgery or to heal well from uh, a surgery and to heal optimally. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Deidre Manns, who is a specialist in both Pilates and Physical therapy. She has her doctorate in physical therapy. Uh, but before we speak with her and learn her story, why don't you tell people how they can get in touch with us?
0: Great, thank you, Glenn. Uh, for those of you who might be watching on live and line, uh, live online, uh, you can actually scroll down from the screen, and there's a little comment box. There you can put in your comment or your question, and I can read it out to our guest and Dr. Woolman and if you would like to do this personally and ask your question personally you are very welcome to dial into 323 476 3672 and the pin number is 607 393 pound and this number in case uh, it went by a little too fast should be coming up on the screen uh during the during the live presentation well, there you go glenn <laughs>
1: Thank you. That's perfect. Uh, so today, as I said, we're going to be interviewing and fortunate to have with us as a guest, Dr. Deidre Mans. She's a doctor of physical therapy and a certified Pilates rehabilitation specialist. So we have a great story to tell today, and I want to get to it right away. Welcome, Dr. Deidre Mans.
0: Glenn. Hello, Christina. How are you? Hello, Dr. Deidre. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for honoring our community.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, Deidre, as the medical guide, I usually like to tell our audience the direction we may take today. So I want to just start with learning about uh, how you decided to become a healer when you did that and how you went about that. Then I want to talk about your profession as a doctor of physical therapy and a a Pilates instructor. I want to go through that. And then I want to uh, take you on other parts of the journey that have been part of your life. And we'll see where we can combine all of those and see how we learn from each and the benefits and negatives of each of the things that we're going to be talking about today. Is that all right with you?
2: Sounds great.
1: Excellent. So why don't we start with when and how and why and where you decided to become a healer and take us up to about the year 2003 to
0: 2004.
2: Whoa, that's a long time. That okay. sure is. Um, <laughs> well, um, being a healer probably came from the influence of my grandmother who was a nurse and mm. um, I just loved how she seemed to be very passionate about what she did and she was very knowledgeable and, um, she, she seemed to be a kind of a pioneer in her field at that time. And so I started to really look into medicine as a, a career. And the, I guess back in when I was in high school, when I made a little bit more of a definitive um, uh, choice, I didn't want to necessarily be a physician because I certainly, I was like, I don't want to be in school for, you know, ever. But it seems as though I was still in school forever.
1: I was going to say... (laughs) (laughs)
0: Nice,
2: But, um, and then I also wanted to have a little bit more of an interaction with my patients, um, versus having, and just, that was just coming from my own experience as a patient, you know, when I saw my doctors even back at, you know, 19 dot, 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 um, when they had a little bit more time to spend with us, um, it just seemed to be a little bit brief. And so I didn't, I wanted to find something that was going to be where I can have um, a little bit more contact with my clients or my patients. And I didn't think nursing was it either, because when I saw nursing, I said, well, I don't think I'm going to want to be doing a whole lot of blood and gore. So I decided that um, that probably wasn't it. And Um, Then I was a dancer um, in high school. I went to Montclair High School in Montclair, New Jersey, go blue. And I went Mm -hmm. to (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I um, I got exposed to athletic training um, somehow. And the uh, the head athlete athletic trainer was also the English teacher at the time. And he asked if I would come and assist him. So I did. And I learned how to tape up sweaty um, feet and knees. And, um, <laughs> at that time that uh, we were working with the varsity football team who was number one in the state, by the way, and go blue. <laughs> go blue. And, um, so it just kind of went from there and he said, you know, what you should probably look into is physical therapy. And I, I did. And, um, it became a uh, much more of a, arduous journey than I had anticipated, but I made it. And, um, that's how I became a healer. So that takes us to probably 1997, which is when I, um, got an associate's degree in physical therapy. So I was a physical therapist assistant at that time. I had already graduated, um, with a bachelor's degree from SUNY Stony Brook and I had applied to physical therapy schools in the New York region, New York, New Jersey region. And at that time it was probably, I remember um, the state university, no, I'm sorry, SUNY, uh, CUNY, which is uh, Hunter School, which is the city university of New York. They had a physical therapy program there and I remember applying there. And at that time, there was 900 applicants for 30 seats. So the, and I'm, I'm sure that it's very, very, um, close to that at this point, as far as the comp, the competitiveness to get into physical therapy programs. So anyway, I also applied to a physical therapist assistant program. I got in, went to New York university. Um, when I finished that in 1997, I worked for, um, the Hospital for Joint Diseases, um, Orthopedic Institute in Manhattan. And they also have uh, the Harkness Center of Dance Medicine, which is world-renowned um, dance medicine uh, center and clinic. And I worked there with um, Donald Rose and Mary Jean Liedebach at that time. And these are two big players in the dance medicine world and physical therapy world. And that's when I got exposed to Pilates, There for the first time and um, continued my education. Got into PT school in 2000, I guess. Finished in 2000, 2001. I'm sorry, finished in 2004. So we're back, we're at 2004. Should we end there?
1: Yes, that's a good idea for just a moment or two.
2: Just a moment or two.
1: So there are many people that are considering uh, careers in physical therapy and Pilates, would you just briefly tell us what it takes to become a physical therapist and also a Pilates instructor?
2: Um, For a physical therapist, uh, for those people who are interested in knowing more about what physical therapists do and what the requirements, uh, the general requirements are to get into physical therapy schools and to to continue on as a physical therapist, um, you should go to the website www.ap t a dot O-R-G, That's for the American Physical Therapy Association, which is our national association um, for physical therapists, and they represent us um, legally. Um, and they're they're also are the best resource for anyone who's interested in this um, career. Um, but as far as my own personal experience, it it, it takes quite a bit. You have to um have a, a very high grade point average. Um you have to to go through the sciences, anatomy and physiology, chemistry, physics, um, kinesiology, biomechanics, um you have to go through calculus, uh all sorts of all of those hard things that you <laughs> Sciences that you have to, to go through just to apply to get into physical therapy school. Um, most physical therapy schools are um, about 30 to 50 um, seats per year, and you've got hundreds of people who are competing for those 30 to 50 seats per year. Um, one of the reasons why that is is because if you look at the national statistics uh, as far as best jobs to have in the country um physical therapy is often not often it's it, i would say it's always in the top ten um so we 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 always have work and there we always um are looking for you know the schools are always looking for a great people to fulfill to fill those those spots. So it's it's pretty competitive. Um that said, that's as far as physical therapy is concerned, um as a Pilates instructor, however, um you do not have to have a college degree. You um can go to any physical you can go to any um Pilates Uh, program that might be available to you around your area. The one that I chose and I believe is the best is Polestar Pilates. Um, There you can go to uh, um, polestarpilates.com and you can get information on becoming a certified instructor there. I am currently an educator for that program and It is one of the better programs because it allows, it it facilitates clinical, not clinical, but critical thinking, and it also has a physical therapy background. The um, CEO and president, Dr. Brent Anderson, is um, a physical therapist, and he's been, um, he's had that company going for 20 years, so... It's a, it's a great program. It's an international program. So if you get certified as a Pilates instructor, you can also sit for, you, if you go through a program, a full comprehensive program, you get a chance to sit for the Pilates Method Alliance um, certification. And for for anyone who is looking for more information on that, you can go to the PilatesMethodAlliance.org. Um, so that's kind of it. I hope I answered that. That's
1: good. Yeah. <laughs> tell us that th- most of us know what physical therapy is. There might be a few people on the planet that aren't quite sure what Pilates is. Would you give us a definition of Pilates and also tell us how they complement each other and how they differ from each other?
2: A definition for Pilates well, that is um a very interesting question. I often get that question, well, what is Pilates? Well, it's typically what is a Pilates so. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to do a little education. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Pilates is, uh, Joseph Pilates was a person who developed a program of, um, that is a mind body very much in the sense that yoga is, um, a mind body connection, uh, where he originally believed that, you should be able to control your body with your mind and your mind with your body. So um, he has pretty much come up with three tenets, which is whole co- whole body commitment, breathing, and whole body health. So that is, and it was a lifestyle for him. And he taught it as a lifestyle and it continues to be, um, or it should be considered uh, as part of a lifestyle versus a exercise regimen. Um, so what we do in Pilates is that we, um, we teach different aspects to help people concentrate better, um, on what they're doing to make it very specific, uh, make movements very specific and, and very tailored and very centered to, um, a purpose actually. So, um, again, when we talked about, when we're talking about Joseph Pilates, we're talking about, you know, this mind-body connection and the way that we teach the mind-body connection is actually centering yourself, concentrating on what you're doing, making a, making the movements very precise and understanding that you have the control over your body. Um, And that's just my opinion. And I'm sure there's, there's others that can give you their opinion. And I'm sure that, you know, they might have um, be able to, you know, take it to a broader level, but in the very essence of what it is, you no, know, Joseph Pilates was a German. He was very, he's just like, no, it's not going to be, you know, kind of left it's left. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's about centering, it's about being very specific. It's about being aware of, of your, um, of yourself. And I think that in movement and in life, um, we aren't necessarily aware of ourselves. And so I think that Pilates, in this case, can really help to gain awareness and, and control over yourself.
1: That means that when you're learning the exercises and the movements and the coordination and the core and connecting body, mind, and breathing uh, in, the, in the room where you're doing the Pilates on the apparatus or on the mat, then you take those same, uh, lessons and use them in real life, how to sit down, how to stand up your posture, lifting things. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. Well, that's, I'm, I'm happy that you brought this up because, um, there's a little bit of, of, uh, in the physical therapy world, um, Pilates is very complimentary in the physical therapy world. However, um, Pilates is not well known in the physical therapy world here in Los Angeles area and Southern California. And even in California in general, uh, Pilates is well utilized within the physical therapy community. However, it is not that case all over the country. So in, in the grand scheme of things, Um, Pilates was actually, um, had its birth around a little bit later than physical therapy, not much later than physical therapy. And, um, what physical therapists seem to seem not to understand because they don't know is that they think that Pilates is not a functional activity or a functional form of exercise. Mm -hmm. So you're about being able to utilize to, to have the awareness of the core, or whatever the core is what you know everyone equates pilates to but it's so much bigger than that it's the entire body the core is um the foundation that you move upon so the awareness of movement the awareness and concentration of movement that you gain in pilates does translate into a functional activity and that you know hey that, that means that I don't have back pain when I go from sit to stand because my I'm supported. I know how I'm supposed to hold my posture. I am utilizing my leg muscles and and my flexibility and my strength all as one um, so that I can execute a functional activity.
1: Nice. Uh, basically, you work with a lot of Pilates instructors and you work with physical therapists and maybe get together at conferences and and maybe socially every once in a while. Just as a consensus, what's the... What's the one feeling that, that therapists and Pilates instructors get from their clients and patients that makes them feel good? What, what do they like to hear?
2: Well, I th- <laughs> it's very interesting because just like physical therapists, Pilates instructors are you know, very specific um, about a goal. And, um, oftentimes, you know, as physical therapists, we are, we are trained to look for, um, uh, malalignment. We're trained to look for poor biomechanics and body awareness. We're trained to look for the reasons why the person came in with knee pain might not, the pain might not be from the knee. The knee is manifest. The pain is manifesting in the knee, but the cause of it might not be the source of it, might not be the knees. So what we are trained to do is find with the source and fix it. And and in Pilates, what what the movement, when you're trained as a Pilates instructor, you're trained to analyze movement and make sure the movement is very specific and make sure that the person is executing the exercise as well, as, as you intend it to be. That said, what the commonality seems to be is that, you know, Um, there seems to be this uh, this thought by some clients that, you know, they feel like they have to perform for us, physical therapists or as a Pilates instructor. And they they seem to be really hard on themselves because they're not doing it right. Um, But what, again, what happens is, in fact, I had a client um, recently that I was talking to and I said, you know, you really, it's okay for you to, you know, not get it 100% of the time. It's okay. And so um, what I like to, bottom line is, is that we are, we, we're trained to, you know, really nitpick at things. However, we want people to come out with a positive experience from being with us. So we want them to be able to walk out the door without pain. We want Mm -hmm. them to (laughs) to go on and function um, the way that they, they ultimately want to function and ultimately achieve, achieve whatever goals that they can. So that's, you know, the bottom line, even though it seems tough, like tough love, it's really about, um, you know, letting that person explore and be who they are.
1: Yes. I've had many issues with physical therapists that have saved my life and it is tough (laughs) love sometimes, but they're great at it. (laughs) And I'm, I and many other people are appreciative of that. Good. When we talk about physical therapy and Pilates, usually we talk about after somebody gets injured or after surgery for healing. But what has Pilates and what has physical therapy done in the world of prevention and preparation?
0: That's a great
2: question. Well, I can, as a physical therapist, um, we are trained to be preventionists, you know. Pretty much, we are trained to to teach people how to. Um, ergo, we'll use ergonomics for an uh, um, an example. We are trained to uh, set up a workstation. We're trained to look at how someone is sitting um, in order to make sure that they are not going to come into our office. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. and to give a skill set so that they themselves can can treat themselves. And, and that's one of the things that I think is, uh, is important about physical therapy. Um, you know, you might have to go to physical therapy for a long period of, uh, uh, an extended bout. However, you know, we're not in, we're not in the business to keep you on our roster. We're here if you need us, but we're here to give you the tools that you need to, to to, for you to be your own interventionalist. Okay. And that is really important. And so again, when we come from a physical therapy perspective, it's, we can teach and we do teach prevention. We do teach wellness. Um, unfortunately in the scheme of the current healthcare model and insurance payment, um, it's difficult to have that, um, be justified in, um, for payment. However, we are those, this, the group of specialists that, that, um, should be, um, and are starting to really implement prevention and wellness in our programs. From a Pilates perspective, it's all about, um, wellness as well, you know, and prevention, um, There are often times that Pilates uh, people come to Pilates because they've been hurt or they've just left physical therapy and they want to have another program that they're um, going to be uh, some sort of strengthening program that they can have to assist them with getting back to a full function. And they often go to a Pilates studio to do that. Um, And in that way, when the person gets stronger and they learn about their body awareness and they learn about um, the, the concentration and, and how to utilize their muscles and, and joints and nervous system and brain, <laughs> then they can um, ultimately hope to prevent injury as well. So we work very closely together um, and it's, very, it's, it's, it's a great marriage in my opinion, and which is why I've sought it.
1: I agree with that. So Deidre Manns is graduating, doing physical therapy, doing Pilates, having a great life. And 2005 comes along.
2: 2005 comes along, yes. (laughs) 2005, I um, was diagnosed with breast cancer. In 2005, a stage one um, breast cancer. And that threw a loop. But I have had, um, fibrocystic breast disease, um, since I was 19. Um, so what is that? That That I have very dense, um, bumpy breasts. So, um, I had kind of been under surveillance because I had, um, one of my family, my female family members had already been diagnosed and she went through her journey and, um so I had been under surveillance from that time and then um I went back for one of my regular well I was I say I, you know was I was doing my own self-exams um for since I was 19 and then I actually found the lump. We had it looked at. Um she said, let's go in. She did a biopsy and um we weren't expecting it to be positive. But it came back positive. And so I was like, hmm, okay. And so the journey started at that point.
1: What was your first feeling when you heard that across from the doctor's desk?
2: Um, what was my first feeling? I guess shock and awe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess shock and awe is the only way I can describe it.
1: Uh, Deidre you found you had the lump and they worked you up and then the doctor went in and did surgery had to do a second surgery and tell us what happened during the second surgery and move forward from there.
2: Okay, so the second, the reason why she went in to get to to have a second surgery was because she wanted to get a larger amount of tissue that was surrounding the tumor to make sure that there was not any other um, cancerous cells around it. And during that particular surgery, she decided, we decided that we were going to have a sentinel node biopsy, which is um, a biopsy of the lymph nodes that are in my axillary area, or not all of them, but a few of the ones that are closest to the breast tissue. Um, and they took a few of those out and they did a, a pathology test while I was on the table and that came back negative. And, um, at that point we decided that everything was okay. And, and I, uh, we consulted with the oncologist at the time and, um, And at that time, it looked like I was going to have a 96% chance of uh, a success rate with just radiation and um, tamoxifen for five years after.
1: So radiation and chemotherapy?
2: No chemotherapy. I did not have chemotherapy the first time. Okay. Okay. So just radiation, um, which is a 30-day process. And then after that, I, so I went for, for five days uh, a week for six weeks. And then after that, I started, um, a hormone, um, called Tamoxifen, or I guess it's, it's actually a hormonal therapy, um, called Tamoxifen. And I took that for five years. Mm-hmm. And then that takes 2000, uh, that was, uh, 2011, 2011.
1: And through that process, did you ever stop thinking about cancer? Was it when they said 96%, was there that 4% that always was in your mind? Or did you feel pretty comfortable that it was over?
2: Um, no, there was, there's always that, well, for me, I can't say there always is. But there, for me, there was that, you know, that, that 4%, um, you know, chance or that, or that, that you know, it could come back. I don't necessarily remember it being, oh, is that 4%, but it was like, okay, well, you know, it could be there. So, yeah.
1: So this was a pretty big experience for you, and did it change you in any way? Did it get you to stop thinking about practicing healing, or did it inspire you in different ways? What did you learn from this experience?
2: Um, For me, that experience actually was the cause of me to to do a lot of the things that I currently—it probably helped to propel me to the West Coast because I had lived in the East Coast for all my life, um, either Washington, D.C. or New Jersey, and I um, just decided— um, that it was important for me to live life in a different way and explore the, explore the world and explore, you know, life in a different area. So, and, and as far as healer is concerned, did it change the way I felt as a healer? I don't necessarily know that that changed me as a healer. I mean, it, I'd like to say that it made me more Zen or something like that, but that's not the case. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, um, you know, I'm kind of a you know, I'm a uh, I'm a Type A personality. That's you know, pretending not to be, but
1: <laughs> that's pretty zen. <laughs>
2: but, but, you know, it is what it is. And so I just kept moving and kept, you know, wanting to excel my career and kept wanting to, you know, go through all the classes and get all the certifications and, you know, get the letters behind my name as, you know, some would say. And, um, I, you know, I was very successful at that. Um, so, yeah it just kept going forward it, it it propelled me i can't say it propelled me forward but i can say that it it definitely helped
1: you went from you went from your master's degree to a doctoral degree didn't you
2: i did i did um it 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 was just one of those things yeah <laughs> I guess, <laughs> um, yes, I got a, a master's of science in physical therapy from Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. And then um, that was a three-year program though. And then um, I went back a few years later and got a, a doctor of physical therapy, at DPT from the same university. Um, and Um, So it was part of the challenge. That was part of the challenge for sure. I had gotten a certification in orthopedic manual therapy. I got my Pilates certification by that time. I had my doctorate. I probably had taken, you know, 20 continuing education courses or more um, within a four or five year time frame. So um, I was pretty focused
1: (laughs) on stuff. (laughs) Are all physical therapists are not... Uh, DPTs at this point. Is that going to be changing?
2: Yes, that is. Um, the American Physical Therapy Association, um, I'm not sure exactly when this came out. I want to say in the early 2000s, probably Probably, I think it was in 2000, um, they came out with a vision, um, and they called it Vision 2020, that by the year 2020, all physical therapists will um, graduate with a doctor of physical therapy. Um, Marymount University uh, got Theirs changed their program to a doctoral program in of course, two thousand five after I graduate. Okay. actually no, what what happened was is that I was on track for the doctoral um, program, um, but they just couldn't get the the, the uh, certification in time for my graduation, so it didn't take me many credits to um, continue on with the doctorate.
1: So seven years later. Uh, you finish. You get diagnosed in 2005. You're back to work. You have your doctoral degree. You're doing all sorts of great things for the community and for Pilates and for physical therapy. You get your checkups, and uh, in 2012 you go back for a checkup, and what happened?
2: There's a cancer in my lymph nodes.
1: So that I was have in your rep- axillary region or your armpit.
2: It's in my axillary region. Yeah. So one of the it was and that was like, you know, really? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> oh, that was oh. And that was in um when did that happen? July, I guess. July of twenty twelve, yeah. Yeah, that happened. And, um, it was surreal. It was a surreal experience and it was, um, um, devastating in some ways, um, to manage. And I, uh, dug my head in the sand for a a couple of months, actually. I was like, this is not happening to me. And, um, then I, you know, decided to pull my head out of the sand. I and say, like, okay, Deidre, you got to do something about this. So, um, I did. And I, um, currently am, uh, Kaiser Permanente. I work for Kaiser Permanente and I, um, also do some other things, but I'm in that I am working for Kaiser Permanente. I am a member as well. And, um, when I went to To have the mammogram, they, uh, mammogram and ultrasound. And that's when they made the suspicion. And I said, you know, I just, you know, my head just couldn't wrap itself around that. And once I went back, I went through a, uh, very expedient plethora of tests. (laughs) (laughs) They, I think I had about four or five tests, um, done in a week. That was, um, that was also a surreal experience, but I'm very grateful. Um, so, so yeah, the, the exams that I had were, um, uh, breast MRI and I had a CAT scan of my entire body under contrast. I had, uh, a, a bone scan of my entire, entire body under contrast. I also had, a ultrasounds. I had a breast biopsy. Oh no, I had did I have the biopsy. Yeah. I had a biopsy. All of this happened all like within a week and, um, gratefully all, but the biopsy came back negative, which indicated that there was not a spread of cancer outside of the region that of my, my, um, my lymph nodes in my armpit. So, um, that meant that I wasn't going to die of that today. So that was, that was good. Um, but there was a week there, a week to 10 days that was, um, you know, I saw the world differently
1: in a Explain way. Explain that, please.
2: I don't know. I, you know, I kind of, I, I, there's there's parts of me that would love to be able to access that again. Because, you know, you, when you're in a, in a kind of a, you're in this nebulous zone where you're not sure what's up or what's down, you kind of, um, or, or if you know, you're in a life or death situation, you know, you could, you know, you could be dying. Um, you see the world, you appreciate the world, you see the world in a very different way that I don't, I can't articulate, unfortunately. Um, except for you see all the beauty in the world.
1: You see all beauty in the world. I think that's the Zen part.
2: Yeah, that's the Zen, and that's like a, that's a you know, you you really appreciate the world in a in a very different way.
1: So now you knew you had to go through more things again. You had to have a surgery, and there was the possibility of chemotherapy this time. How did you prepare for this? What was your support group?
2: Well. Okay, so the possibility of chemotherapy wasn't really a possibility. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to be
2: nice. Thank you. I appreciate you. Well, I, it was my choice. It's ultimately my choice. And that's one of the things that I'd like you, your listeners to understand, that ultimately it is your choice. I chose, my doctors said, okay, well... You have to have chemotherapy, and you have to have an axillary node dissection. And at that time, they were saying, "Well, you could have either one. One can happen before the other." Um, and I consulted with um, a couple of doctors—one um, outside of the Kaiser Permanente system and and a few inside of the Kaiser Permanente system—and um, to get a few opinions to to kind of see where I should go. And the ultimate consensus was that. Um, we would do the axillary node dissection, which means that they took all of my axillary nodes that I had available on my right side out and um, Dr. Jan Tagasugi, who is the woman, did that for me, and she um and I had a really good outcome and um after about uh, six weeks after that. I started chemotherapy and I am now on my third well I just finished my third episode about a week ago. So
1: you're still in chemotherapy right now as we speak. As we speak. As we speak. And that that is something that most people hear about uh the the dangers of chemotherapy, the side effects of chemotherapy, people fear chemotherapy. You're going through it now. Can you share some things with us that will help people as they have to make these kind of decisions, what it's like to be going through chemotherapy on a day-to-day basis?
2: Okay, sure. Um, Well, gratefully, um, my chemotherapy regimen is not Super aggressive. I am on two chemotherapy medications. Um, my oncologist is Dr. Teresa Dubernet um, of of West Los Angeles Kaiser Permanente, and we decided that um, you know I would be on two chemotherapy drugs, which is Cytoxin and Taxotere. Um, they're you know depending on um, you know the severity of of your your cancer, you know depends on what regimen they're going to utilize. So, um, I'm afraid I have to be on two. Um, however, chemotherapy, when the prospect of chemo, when they, when everyone told me that I had to go through chemotherapy, I was like, really, I so don't want to do this. You know, I went to, um, I, it was just one of those things that I was like, I don't want to lose my hair. I don't want to go through the whole process. Um, it's just going to be so draining and all the things that you hear and all the scary stuff that you hear about chemotherapy, um, is, is true in some ways, but it's not, it doesn't happen. All of those things don't happen to you. Um, but, um, to kind of get back to your question about, you know, how does it make me feel? How did it, how does the prospect of chemotherapy feel? It's like, well, okay, well, um, I could not do the chemotherapy and there are certainly other alternative medicines and alternative, um, uh, easternized ways that you can, that have said that they can treat cancers without chemotherapy. However, my Western mind was not able to wrap its head around that. So, um, I said, okay, chemotherapy it is. And it is, it's been a journey in the sense that, um, you don't quite know what's happening to your body at first, and then your body kind of figures it out. (laughs) So my third time around seems to be the most successful of the ones that I've had, um, in a lot of ways. Um, I, um, going through chemotherapy, you have to have a support system of some sort, if you possibly can. Um, I encourage that, you know, um, the first time I went through cancer, I kind of cocooned myself and I, you know, said I could heal myself and I, you know, I was able and I was, you know, strong and I can, and I can do all this stuff. And, um, this time around, um, and I didn't actually allow people to help me in a in way that they wanted to, and I wasn't sure that I knew how to help have how to tell them to help me, but um, a support system, whether they're friends, whether they're family, whether it's a combination of the two, is vital for chemotherapy um, and uh, so I don't know do you want to hear about symptoms? Do you want to hear about well, what is it? Do you want to hear anything more about my what I'm currently going through?
1: I think that would be a great idea.
2: Okay. Um, well, the symptoms that are associated with my chemo. Now, I should also say that everyone responds to chemotherapy differently. Your doctor is going to say this to you potentially, those of you who are out there who may be dealing with this. They're going to tell you this, and you're going to read the list the long list of of symptoms and potential side effects of chemotherapy. You are going to respond as an individual you might not have any of those those side effects or you might have some of those side effects, or you might have all of them. The point is is that you just kind of need to honor the process because um, you know chemotherapy. Is no joke. <laughs> yeah. I have to, I have to, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm a type A personality. I'm a go getter, superwoman, pretending not to be one. But what chemotherapy has taught me is to honor that, the process, to honor the chemo- chemotherapy in a way that it's like, you know what? No, you're not going to be able to get out of bed today. Mm-hmm. You need to honor that. My sister uh, is is with me for this episode. I call. By the way, I'm calling my my. I'm journaling my my process through uh, chemotherapy, and I'm calling it the chemo chronicles. So I'm on episode three, and my sister has been out here with me for this episode because it seems as though that first week of chemotherapy, the first week after chemotherapy, is the most challenging. Um, my chemotherapy is scheduled every three weeks for six bouts for six episodes. So, um, my sister we my mother was here for for the the first and the second episodes, and during that time we kind of figured out how my body is handling the chemotherapy with along with my oncologist and we noticed that the first week is really the hardest time, and even if we needed to truncate that down, it's really the first four days four to five days after the chemotherapy is the hardest time and so um And during this bout or this episode, um, the fatigue was so profound that my sister pretty much had to get me dressed one day um, so I could go out and go to my doctor's appointment (laughs) and um, then come home and go back to sleep. I think I slept more than 15 hours or something like that. Um, But that was uh, two or three days ago. And here I am talking to you, so um, feeling much more energetic. I'm um, feeling, um, you know, like, you know, it's a beautiful day here in Southern California. And, you know, after I get off of, after we finish off, I'm going to, you know, take a little bit of a rest and then I'm going to go and do something else for the day. So it's it's good. Oh, I, yes, my sister's reminding me that what I'm doing for the rest of the day or one of the things that I'm doing is that I'm getting um, a white blood cell enhancement. Or which kind of injection so um, that is to help to make sure that my immune system stays high enough so that I don't get sick because one of the things that happens in chemotherapy is that your immune system um, your immune system through your white blood cells uh, really gets hammered um, and, and your white blood cell count goes down pretty low potentially and mine what we found is mine crashes when I have chemotherapy, so I have to get a couple of these um, white blood cell enhancers um, to help to boost my immune system, so I can be a part of the community and I can do things that I enjoy, and I can have you know two and a half weeks of of the month to be a, a you know feeling some version of normal. so um, that's important.
0: Anything else? Um, yes, Deidre, it's my turn now. (laughs) Um, Deidre, since your first, um, your first bout of cancer in 2005, um, and you were on, on the, the hormonal therapy basically for the five years, it's almost like once you stop the hormonal therapy. That's
2: a great question. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, it's, (laughs) Science is
0: this funny thing, okay? It's alchemy. <laughs> it's amazing.
2: Funny thing, um, I stopped my tamoxifen. The the regimen, the standard of care for tamoxifen at that time was five years to be on the tamoxifen, and I got off in two thousand eleven. In December of two thousand twelve. The breast cancer panel. I can't. I don't know exactly what it's called, but they have this breast cancer symposium and panel that meets once a you know once a year or so, and they come come out with a new study about tamoxifen, saying that the regimen should now be ten years versus five. And it's just you know it's just the way that science is. So now the protocol is 10 years for tamoxifen and, um, and, and apparently I I don't know if my, my cancer would have, you know, I would never know that the answer to that question for my cancer, because I'm down a different path because of, you know, of the timing of everything, but, you know, that said, um, cancer research has made leaps and bounds in the last 10 years, I think more than it has in its existence um, in the last 10 years. So um, as far as research and protocol changes and standards of care, it's really made huge, huge um, leaps and bounds. Um, However, there's still this huge unknown about cancer and breast cancer specifically. I can only speak from that. Perspective. Um, there's this huge unknown um, that they're still working towards, um, and and they're still striving towards. But it's you know, they, there's it's uh, it's amazing um, as a medical professional to be working with a group of medical professionals um, that you know in general, it's not the group of medical professionals, but oncology in general, as far as breast cancer is concerned, they still don't know a lot. There's still a lot that they don't know. And I think, actually, I just was listening to NPR recently, and they just found four more genetic markers for breast cancer um, in this last month that would indicate a woman's breast cancer is due to a genetic cause. So things are moving forward. It's just, you know, I'm, you know, it's my path. This is, I'm on a different path. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. And, and during this time, um, did you change your, I know you didn't, you were very clear about not going into the other forms of medicine or philosophies. Um, How about just uh, your uh, simply changing your diet? Yet, you know, I have had quite a few friends that have dealt with breast cancer and as you say I've seen them go through chemo and all these different levels as you mentioned you know from not you know really being totally affected to not being able to even step out of bed or roll out of bed the next morning um for yourself did you uh, were you did you change your diet or oh. nutritional Yes, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so
2: glad that we're talking about it. So, you know, with this recurrence, I said, okay, well, you know, well, first of all, I should say, you know, the statistics are that 5% of all breast cancers can be related to a genetic cause. The other 95% is environmental. Okay. So, um, or, or something. Okay. So we're talking about environments in general, we're talking about external environments, and we're also talking about internal environments because there's this, there's, you know, the thought is, is that there's this, you know, kind of perfect storm activity that creates, you know, the proliferation of cancer cells. Um, um, So in that, this, with the recurrence, I said, okay, well, Some's got to give. <laughs> I got something's got to give. Even though I am going down a westernized route, I am also implementing um, easternized medicine. I am also um, working with a nutritionist, um, Lily Padilla, here in Los Angeles, who is also an ovarian cancer survivor. And she is um, helping me with, with changing the way I eat food foods I eat, um, and what the the things that I drink, the things, um, my lifestyle. I'm also doing acupuncture, which I cannot say is, um, I can't say more about acupuncture. I believe it is it is helping me. It's not. I, I'm not in an, any significant pain. I don't go to acupuncture for pain management. I go to acupuncture for immune support. Actually, she helps to uh, to build my immune system. She helps to kind of chill me out <laughs> a little. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, I, I get into these, I, I believe that it's imperative for, um, those of those people who are seeking or who are going through chemotherapy to really seek out acupuncture as an adjunct to what they're doing. And also you do need to change your diet. Um, the Western, I'm the Westernized, uh, uh, feel, I can't say westernized. The The general consensus in medicine is that if you have a heart-healthy a heart diet, you're in a good place, okay? Um, however, there are lots of studies that are not uh, in Europe and in other countries that are um, indicating the level of sugar in your body um, as being a feed, uh, feed source for cancer. And um, so one of the things that I am striving for. I'm not as successful as I'd like to be, but I'm working towards that, um, is to really cut out the amount of a high level of sugar in my diet. Um, and I am, um, exercising, I've always exercised, but on the days that I can, I exercise, I do something. Um, and, um, so that Really, and the mind body connection, and so so when you're talking about Eastern philosophy, um, meditation has been a huge, huge part of of helping me um, stay. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to stay because it, it ebbs and flows. My emotions ebb and flow. And that's something that happens with chemo as well. Um, but it helps me kind of stay in a better place. It helps me understand my purpose. It helps me, which is why I'm here talking to you and and Glenn and your guests about my story this time. Because I, you know, have been told that I'm supposed to do this because I've meditated. And, you know, it's it's time for me to share this experience with others.
1: How have you taken this, this chemotherapy, just like you did in your first episode of breast cancer and now your re-diagnosis? How have you taken this and moved forward professionally? Any ideas from this experience that you've learned and things that you're considering changing in your professional career?
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I am... And currently in research and development um, for some programs that are going to be based for cancer patients. And um, at this point, I'm looking to develop a uh, Pilates program that is based for um, cancer patients in general. Um, but I think that, you know, looking at breast cancer patients is probably the first um, place that I'll go with it. Um, when I started doing some research on the topic and just breast cancer in general, it is such a huge topic. It's so vast. Um, so it's almost as if I'm, um, creating something out of this void, not void, but this just huge amount of information. And so the research and development for me is, is, you know, from my own experience, and I'm also, you know, hoping that I'll be able to work with some other, um, some other people who are currently going through chemotherapy or have recently gone through chemotherapy. Therapy to to, you know, implement some Pilates programs, some rehabilitation programs. There are rehabilitation protocols for physical therapy um, for um, breast cancer because one of the things that occurs, uh, there's a few things that occur with breast cancer Um, post surgically. You will have um, potentially some arm and upper extremity stiffness and range of motion deficits and strength deficits. You might also, um, get lymphedema. You might, your, your cardiorespiratory system will be impacted because you, you know, are in this kind of sedentary state. Um, so there's many things, many avenues as a physical therapist, we can, I can look at and, and, and to create a program that would be successful for, um, breast cancer patients specifically.
1: Excellent. I think uh, we'll all benefit from that. We're speaking with Deidre Manns, a doctor of physical therapy and a certified Pilates rehabilitation specialist and someone who is going through uh, dealing with cancer. I wonder, just like we ask all of our guests, Mm Deidre, for a specific health tip. That's something that you have Come up with in your life, be it in your experiences now or in physical therapy that you would like to share with our viewers
2: Well, my biggest health tip for and it's not mine, <laughs> but I do and i'm i am not affiliated with this person um, but this book is called Chemo Secrets for uh, Chemo Secrets to Thriving um it's a it's a less than a hundred page book. Um, and it has been the best thing that has happened to me during my chemotherapy experience because she does, she is a breast cancer survivor. Um, however, the author is a breast cancer survivor, and the author is Roxanne Brown. Um, she, it's very, lots of pictures, really funny stories, but she gives lots and lots of tips about thriving through chemotherapy. So it's something that your family can read, it's something that you should read so that they understand what's going on with you and that you also understand what's happening to you and that you're not in it alone. Um, The other thing that I would say is um, more importantly um, than that is to really seek out a support system. You have them around you. There's people around you that want to help you. And if you let them know um, and you let them know that they need to be on your time (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that, that, that both parties, both you as the patient, and the person who's going through chemo and the person who's helping you, the the primary requirement is that you both check your egos at the door. Um, you know, you as the, the person who's the receiver needs to check your ego and say, okay, I need this help. I need my, my sister. I'm 44. My sister had to put my socks on. Okay. Um, and my sister walked in the door and said, it's okay. I'm going to put your socks on. When my mom was here, she was, you know, talking me off the ceiling at two o'clock in the morning because I was an anxiety attack because I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, and so she was able to do that. And, you know, if I asked her to do anything for me, she would have. And she did. So, um, so please, you know, just seek out a support system.
1: Those are great tips. I would like yeah. to say that I just uh, lost a good friend to breast cancer and he was about 62 years old. So I wonder if you have a quick piece of advice for men and women in terms of checking yourself and follow-ups and examinations.
2: Thank you. Yeah, um, it is important that everyone... uh, Breast cancer in men is less prevalent than it is in women. Um, Every, you know, one in eight women will get breast cancer each year. So that, I think, turns into about 12... 5% of all women in the United States will get, you know, breast cancer or be diagnosed with breast cancer in a year. So that's a, that's a pretty big statistic. Um, men it's less. Um, so however, it is in, imperative that you as women, um, do your self exams and you also, um, make sure that you are uh, doing them on a monthly basis. You teach your daughters how to do it, or you go to the gynecologist to make sure that they know how to to teach you and your daughters and your sons how to to check for lumps in their breasts and to to get things checked out immediately. Um, the standard of care is changing. the 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 diagnostics are changing. Um, things are moving very forward. Things are moving forward, and it's it's. You know, early detection is the cure, actually. I I, I wouldn't say cure. I would say it's the best prognosis. Early detection is the best. You've got got better outcomes when you've got an early detection. Um, It's when you don't have the early detection and things get a chance to manifest to a larger level that the outcomes are not as good.
1: Thank you for that. That's really good advice for everyone. I am planning on having uh, some breast and cancer specialists on future shows, so look forward to that. This time, I'm very grateful to our special guest, Dr. Deidre Manns, for sharing her wisdom, her expertise, and her experience with us. While we were planning this show, uh, we weren't even sure if we would be able to go ahead, but she was so courageous in dealing with the chemotherapy for the sake of our audience, To give this information, there's a special thank you for for doing that. And also to your sister, uh, who made sure that this show went on today, and to all of your support system. Thank you. Uh, I would like to thank all of my healers and all of my teachers for allowing me to be on my journey. And I look forward to being with all of you again, with Christina, as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Until that time, I wish to thank you very much, Deidre. And I look forward to seeing everyone next week. But until then, I wish you all optimal health.
0: And again, thank you so much, Dr. Deidre Mann, and your wonderful, loving support team that you have, as we said earlier, uh, in, before we started, what goes around comes around. So I do believe that you've built that support system around you a long time ago.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I've got, you know, friends and boyfriends, too, that are, you know, boyfriend.
1: (laughs) Be careful. Uh, No,
2: no, no, it's, you know, my boyfriend cut my hair. So it's, you know, it's, it was a special time. So thank you so much.
0: Wonderful. We would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live every Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, one thirty Eastern Time, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anantara. And if you would like to contact Dr. Glenn Woolman, do so at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman, or follow him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own website com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. Until we meet again, namaste.